Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with pastor teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Daniel chapter 8, and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great." As I was considering, behold, a he-goat from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came up, four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that saint, certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Here Daniel has a second vision. And again, just for the timeline, we're still backing up. The onion is being unpeeled. 
So we know that in the previous chapters that Belshazzar, the final king of Babylon, has already been killed and Darius and the Medes and the Persians are already taking place. And so here in the book of Daniel, as Daniel is writing or his assistant is writing, we go back then in time again and it says in the first verse of chapter 8 that now well, this particular vision that he had was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. It says that this vision appeared to him and he seems to be moved in the spirit along somewhere else into the vision or into the planet, some other location. We're not sure if he was literal or just in mind, but either way he he finds himself moved around and he has this vision of grotesque animals fighting. He has a vision of a ram that is pushing forward and it has two horns. And then, of course, he has this, uh, what he calls a he-goat who comes and begins a fight with the ram. And in a very grotesque way, these two animals go at it to the point where the goat eventually crushes through the ram, breaks his horns off, and then stamps him in a miserable way and pulverizes him into the ground. And it's an extremely graphic vision that Daniel has. He doesn't understand it. It troubles him, and it would trouble any of us to see the brutality that he saw as this poor creature is crushed and stamped down, it says, stamped to the ground, and he stomped upon him until finally no one could rescue him. And you can see then finally the slow, miserable death of this ram. What he's trying to do then is he explains that there are the horns. We know the horns are pictures of power. We've learned that already in Daniel. The horns of these creatures are sometimes kings, but they represent power or monarch or dominion, sometimes sovereignty, but the horn usually represents something. And there he comes down and he says in verse 9 that after he sees this grotesque vision of these two animals, it says, and out of one of them came forth then a little horn, another power, another king, And it says, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Of course, the pleasant land we know as Israel itself, or even even specifically Jerusalem, her capital. Now, what he's doing is, is Daniel is going to have kind of a dual vision here because he sees something take place. You notice that there's in the vision itself, there is some interpretation given to him actually as he is having the vision. And then later on, he will get the true interpretation of the vision. And it almost kind of will begin to look like two separate visions. It'll, the interpretation is much more graphic than the actual vision itself. There's much detail in a, in a specific way concerning one king in particular that he calls in verse 9 a little horn. Now here in Daniel, what he is doing is, is he's explaining something that already has come to pass in history and then something that is going to come as far as our day and age. In Daniel's day and age, this is full prophecy. None of this has taken place. And so what he does is he's going to explain something. Now, The little horn that he's talking about here in verse 9, since this portion of it has already come to pass, we have the history of of it in detail. So what we have, and if you go back to about the, finally when the Grecian Empire is coming to a close, around 175 B.C., we have a little horn, a guy that comes up, and he is just extremely aggressive in his manners. His name was called Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's going to be a short history lesson. And for those of you who don't like history, we'll just speed it along. But his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He ruled there, and he was. He changed his name. His name wasn't originally that. It was something else, and I don't remember what it was. I read about 5,000 pages, and I found his name originally in one of them, and then I searched through the books, and I couldn't find it. So we'll have to just skip over that. 
But anyway, he changed his name to Antiochus Epiphanes. We know what an epiphany is. And so what he is doing is, is when he became king, he, as which was natural for them, is he thought of himself as deity. I am, in an essence, an epiphany. God manifests it through me, shows the pride of the rulers of the Greek and Roman times when they would do this. The Caesars would do this, consider themselves to be deity. But unfortunately, Antiochus Epiphanes was also called Antiochus Epimenes, which was a play on words. He thought, well, it's Antiochus Epiphany. And everybody else behind his back said Antiochus Epimenes, which meant madman. He was a total madman, vicious in his ways. One of the things that he did when we introduced this on Wednesday during the Wednesday night Bible study was the term Hellenism, to be Hellenistic. That was a very common term in the end of the Grecian period into the Roman period where their Hellenism was a way to promote and to preserve Greek culture. So Antiochus Epiphanes was a trophy of Hellenism. It was his goal was to promote Hellenism. Now, when you, when you think of the word Hellenism, you can almost put it next to worldliness. He taught just carnality. He taught worldliness. He was, it was of, of liberal arts. It would be similar to the universities that are of Ivy League in our country today. They all had a way left leaning liberal stance to them. And so he, in this way, was teaching what we know of as Hellenism. And so he pursued this. He pursued Greek culture, and he wanted the worldliness. Now, when I say worldliness, I'm not necessarily saying sinfulness. Worldliness in the Bible, the, James says, to be carnally minded, or fleshly minded, or worldly minded, is death. It's bad for you. It's bad for the Christian to be thinking constantly worldly thoughts, just of today, just of the temporal. We're supposed to be thinking of eternal things as well. And so the person who is constantly thinking of carnal things, he says, is death. But the thing is, is that the difficulty of that is, is that carnal things aren't necessarily sinful. They're just not helpful. This is one of the wiles of the devil. He doesn't have to get you to think sinful thoughts. He just has to get you to stop thinking eternal thoughts. So we'll get you to think carnally or worldly on your thought, and then you're not thinking of things above, and you're not sinning, therefore you're okay. See the subtlety of the things of the devil. And what we're seeing here is pictures of the devil's work. There are many antichrists, and this man in particular is actually considered an antichrist. So much so that as we travel through Daniel, we won't even know if we're talking about the antichrist or Antiochus Epiphanes. One of the things that he did, that in order to permeate his land, especially Jerusalem, which is the religious capital of the world, of course, in Jerusalem and Israel, that's where the God of heaven resides. His name is. This is where all the righteousness would come from. This is where salvation comes from. And so he has to attack this. And his method of attack for Jerusalem was this. In order to make it more Hellenistic, he built a large, ornate gymnasium. Now what's wrong with the gym? He brought in the Greek sports into the gym, a magnificent arena. And he had the sports that would come in that were the top of the line, pro sportsmen, 
pro NFL and NBA and the major leagues, only the best of the best would come to this arena to play so that it would ramp up the spirits of people into not thinking of spiritual things and not sinful things will just make you Hellenistic. Will just make you Greek thinking. I'm told the players actually played in the nude just to hype it up a little. That's why you see a lot of the statues of the Grecians are standing there naked. We're showing their physique, their bodies. These are athletes. Look at every ripped muscle. Look what we are as human beings. We don't need God because we're gods in and of ourselves. Look at how we are made. Now you know that that's a while of the devil. Do you know how many people cannot come to church because of sports? They just cannot come because Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And they're not sinning necessarily. This Hellenism, the liberal thought of our day, has, has infiltrated us today. So just two weeks ago I sent off an email because I was, I was having conversation with a boy who was asking me questions about salvation. And so I invited him to church. I said, well, I'm having actually a salvation evangelistic message this Sunday. You can bring your girlfriend who you're concerned about. It's funny because I don't think he's saved, but he's witnessing to his girlfriend who is not saved either. So it's the blind leading the blind. Anyway, I said, so why don't you just come to church this Sunday? It's a pretty simple message. And he said, oh, I can't go. I have a sports camp on Sunday. And I said, well, that's unfortunate. Because you go to a Christian school whose motto is Christ first. So I emailed and I looked through that thing, you know, uh, you know, I'm, you know, whatever. I'm just looking through. Who do I send an email to? You know, not that it's going to matter, but I'll send it anyway. So I, I, I find the head professor of theology and I send them an email, which I figured he'll never get it. But I said, and I told him what I said, you know, real brief. It's, this is what happened, and, and he responded right away. He goes, "Thanks for calling." He goes, "Why don't you send him to my office and we'll talk? I'll talk to him." I said, I said, sir, I'm only sending a lament. How is it that Christ first Christian school keeps people from church on Sunday? Because they're Hellenistic. They're liberal in thought. And the rot is implemented into the church. Certainly into the colleges. One of the things that he did is as far as his tactics were is, is this uh, Antichrist epiphanies. He went after the what we call the Kohanim. Kohanim, Kohen, you may recognize the name. It's a Jewish name. It's the line of the high priesthood. Plural is Nim. He would actually attack and target the Kohanim and then go after them. And then what they, how he could corrupt them is through money. So if you wanted to become the high priest in his day, you just were, you just whoever was the highest bidder. You want to be the, you want to be the pastor here. Uh, just come up with the highest money and then you, you can sit with the chair and, you know, and the crown and all that stuff. Now, if you want to be the pastor here, you can also do that. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> Bit away. You can have it. 
But as it went on, it got more corrupt and more corrupt till finally he had to corrupt it further and further till finally he actually had a sow sacrificed, which is just grotesque to the Jew to have a sow, uh, an unclean animal, instead of the rams and the lambs and these things that were supposed to be brought in as offerings in order to blaspheme heaven and to blaspheme and to crush down the Jew and to eliminate the Jew who is constantly a thorn in his side because they are constantly religious. They always carry their Bibles and they always are doing these things and we need to get rid of this so he just he just sacrificed a Jew on the altar and then afterward there was an uprising which was what he wanted he drew them into it and then he had a, just a slaughtering of the Jews killed thousands and thousands of Jews mercilessly tortured them to death and just killed them by the by the load he, he installed a statue of Zeus in the temple which actually he thought was himself That's how deranged the guy was that, that's me Zeus the God and then he outlawed Judaism. So as we look at that, you can see now, knowing the history, you can see it playing out in the next verses. Look at it, it says, And out of one of them came forth this little horn, a king, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, especially the pleasant, you know, the, the heartland. Verse 10, And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself to the prince of the host. Now, the prince of the host that was known of then was the high priest. He magnified himself even to the high priest, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Verse 12, And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of the transgression, the uprising. So we have an uprising, we must put down the uprising. So there was a military host given to him, probably corruption even within what we know of as the, the temple police, the temple guards who are the police of the temple are so corrupt because money is flowing from one hand to another to another and we're just going to crush this uprising. So much so it cast down the truth to the ground. And it practiced and it prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint, which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? To give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. How long is this going to be? Now you see, within the vision, there's people speaking, giving some interpretation to Daniel as he's actually experiencing it. He overhears saints, probably angels, that are wondering after manhood. What's going on here? How long is this going to be? They're absolutely blaspheming in the temple of God. And it seems as though nothing is happening. Now I can see some of your eyes already beginning to glaze over. So we need to rush through the history part before I lose you. It gets just a little bit worse because verse 14, he said unto me, well, this is how long it's going to last, 2,300 days, 2,300 days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The problem is, is historically we don't have anything to match that. I read and read and read and read of guys you ever talk to those people who are they're like, well, the Bible numbers stuff, you know, if the Bible is seven days and eight days, and you, it's like, you know, and then the, the letters are uh, the second character to the right, and then the third character to the left, so the Bible's telling me this secret. And you, you, know, you just take eight minus one times two, and then you put it together in the square root of five, and, and now I know when Jesus is coming back. 
So you, you know what I mean? The people are absolute weirdos. That's what they're getting out of here. Oh, there's, 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 there's uh, 2,300 days and minus five in the you know, Jewish calendar. Uh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea. You're guessing. We don't know. It's a historical event. Something happened 2,300 days. But the truth is, we don't know. Probably because now we're starting to turn the corner into something else. When you think of prophecy, it's always dual. Most of the time, dual. Maybe even triple. So what happens is, is you have a prophetical teaching that, it, that starts way back in the book of Genesis, and you get pieces, parts, pieces, parts. And before you know it, you start to see what the puzzle is showing us. Then what will happen is, is you have what we call types, or typology, something that is typical. This person, Antiochus Epiphanes, is typical of an Antichrist. John the Apostle said there's many Antichrists, but there's only one Antichrist. And what we're beginning to see is more things laid down on the transparency so that we're seeing things. And I believe by now what's happening is, is we don't know what the 2300 is because it probably hasn't taken place yet. But one day it will, and then we will know. That's why now he's saying, I need to know what this is, what this means. Verse 15, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, in his humility, it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and had sought for the meaning, probably with his co-astrologers. Then, behold, there stood before me as an appearance of a man. Now we get the curtain pulled back. I heard a man's voice between the banks of Eli, which called and said unto me, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. You hear the king of kings giving orders to one of his generals in the spiritual realm. The voice is God Almighty. He's giving orders from the direct throne to one of his generals, and he names him by name the angel Gabriel that we're familiar with in the Christmas story. This is very rare material. So something very important is going on for God to draw back the curtain, to even not only to say an angel, but to give us his name. Make this man to understand the vision. 17, so he came nearer I stood. When he came, I was afraid. I fell upon my face. Absolutely terrified at the presence of holiness. The top generals, only one higher, the archangel Michael, and he hears the very voice of the king. So he came here, I fell upon my face, I was afraid. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall the vision be. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. It's as if he was dead, face down on the ground. But he touched me and set me upright. Verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. The time of the indignation. We know that as the time of the Gentiles, which is engulfing the whole book of Daniel. The times of the Gentiles, the dominion when Gentiles would rule. Verse 20, The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. We're already familiar with that. We've already gone through a few chapters in Daniel. He's only confirming the visions before. Again, so the, the two kings that he has seen are Cyrus and Darius. 
Verse 21, the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. Now, if you look back into the vision, it says that when they, they came, they didn't even hit the ground, that this mass was running toward him. The, the he-goat was running in a vicious way, not even hitting the ground. When Alexander the Great came with his armies, there were so many of them that they entirely covered the ground, so much so that you could not see them until the host finally passed by. It just looked like the ground itself was moving. And they wiped out and conquered. I mean, they just totally obliterated the enemies. They outnumbered them ten to one sometimes. It was an amazing military feat. And this young general, Alexander the Great, came in crushing and stamped. That's why the division that we see is so brutal and bloody. He's stamping down, just crushing down this other goat as he lays upon the ground. I mean, just absolutely no mercy. Crushes him. And verse 22, now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. That's just fifth grade history, folks. After Alexander the Great, we know what happened. He was conquered, and it was split up into four separate kingdoms and four separate provinces. Greek was no longer a world empire, but it was divided into different vassal kings and separated. So then we see four horns. Then it says, 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, now here we have a signal. I can't tell you enough. When you're trying to study the Bible, just read it. And if you don't understand it, read it again, maybe three times, and then let it go. Because there are certain things, certain verbiage that you'll just read a little bit later on that, that will shake you. And that's what it's designed to do. So we have a signal here when he says here in verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full. What he's talking about there is the transfer of power or of dominion. And so you might remember this sentence if you remember in the book of Genesis. The Jews were in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And there rose up another king that didn't know Joseph. We know the story of Joseph and how that went. And then they're in bondage for 400 years. And the first thing that a person who is studying the Bible is going to ask themselves is, why 400 years? Why does God take so long? What's the point? I mean, 400 years. It was even prophesied all the way back to Abraham. You're going to be in bondage for 400 years. Until a little sentence comes through the Bible and it says, the reason that they waited 400 years is because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. The transfer of dominion from country to country, what raises a country up and what will crush a country down is the nature of sin in the nation. The reason that the Jews did not take the Canaan land yet and had to wait 400 years is because God was gracious to the Canaanites and waited 400 years for their sinfulness to come to the top. In the meantime, God's people are suffering. And that just like Him, we will suffer for their sake. You see the gospel that's coming out even in these things. So what we're seeing here is that signal. In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance 
will come. Now, I have to stop here because we're making a transition here in the interpretation. What I'd like to do first is just show you a couple things before we move any further forward. We're talking of an Antichrist. There's always been Antichrist. There always will be Antichrist. But there's one that's been particular that is coming that Daniel is about to get into. But before you know that, there's certain words, and again, certain verbs. Verbage, I shouldn't say verbs, because I don't know the difference between a verb and a noun. But, <laughs> but there is um, something that I want you to see. Look at in the beginning of the chapter and find out where this all took place. Chapter 8, and in the very beginning, look at it in verse 2, where the Daniel gets this vision. He says, And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan the palace. Does that ring a bell with you? Because it should. What in about 30 years will take place at Shushan the palace? It's Esther. We have a wicked king named Haman who's going to put out a royal edict to do what? Kill every single Jew. And then raise himself and magnify himself to ride upon the king's horse dressed with the king's ring and the king's robe in purple. He's going to magnify himself. You see why it's important that certain words, he mentions this as just in passing, I'm at Shushan the palace. But we know in, in about 50 years or so, we have the story of Esther, where the Antichrist actually is pictured in Haman. Another thing that we want to be realizing here is that if we're talking about a historical event, now Daniel, if you look in the center column of your Bibles, it says about, he's prophesying this about 553 B.C., the history that he is talking about, the prophecy that he's talking about, which for us is now history, took place in about 175 B.C. Now this is important, because what's happening at about 175 B.C.? Well, the transgressors, we know, are coming to the full, which means that we're going to have a transfer in power, and that's exactly what's happening historically, because as of right now, the Romans are crushing with iron teeth. They are stomping their way through the world. They're heading right now as we speak in about 175 B.C. They're heading their way to crush Egypt, one of the world powers, Egypt under Greece. And so when we see that, we have to keep that in mind, that we're talking about the end here. We're going down through the statue, Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire. We're heading right now as we speak into the Roman Empire. In fact, the Roman Empire is already growing and crushing with these iron teeth. Which is important for us to know as we interpret what's happening here. Also, one other thing, throw your ribbon in here and we just go over to what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse. One more thing. Matthew 24. We're familiar with it. The Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaches about the end of time. And so verse 3, He sat upon the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, 3. He said, Upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? So what is he? he's going to tell us of certain events, certain things that are concerning the end of the world. It says in 4, And Jesus said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, I am Christos. I am the anointed one. Many will come and say this. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. There'll be many false Christs. There'll be many antichrists. But again, there's only one, the antichrist. So what he's saying right here is there'll be many of them. 
we can go down earthquakes, famines, pestilence, and all these things, and but just jump down to verse 15. Notice he says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand where? In the holy place. He's referring to this particular place where the holy place, the temple itself, will be ransacked, crushed down. But Jesus is talking about future here. Obviously. The end times. Antiochus Epiphanes is 175 B.C. So which is it? Again, this is, this is where we differ. We are premillennial, pre-tribulation. We believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. An amillennial, no-millennial teacher, the Presbyterians, a lot of the Methodists, they don't say things wrong. They just don't tell you the other half of the story. So they don't believe there will be an Antichrist. There were many Antichrists. There still are many Antichrists, but they don't think that there will be the Antichrist. Just exactly how the Antichrist will take power. When we come back to Daniel here, look at what's happening here. Now you have to remember, we are transferring to the Roman Empire with the crushing of the teeth. We're not quite to the Ten Kings yet because we're only out of the little horn now. But look at the description that takes place here. Because if he's still talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, he's clearly making the transfer to the man of sin. Look at the description that he gives us. And notice also the detail that he gives him according to this vision. He spends more time on this little horn than the rest. It was like, oh, that, that ram thing, yeah, we passed by that. The he goat, yeah, we passed by that. But this little horn. And notice, too, verse 23. What are we talking about and when are we talking about? In the latter time of their kingdom. If you go back to the vision of the statue when the stone is cut out without hands and it crushes the statue, you notice that all of them are present at the same time. We're going through a chronological history of the Bible, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and all that, but when the stone comes to break it, they're all there. They're all present. He crushes them all. The full entire statue comes roaring down. What he's saying here is, and then notice uh, in the interpretation, it's repeated two other times. Verse 17, Understand, O son of man, for at the times of the end shall the vision be. Again in the end of verse 19, he said, and Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. When are we talking about? Clearly, the end. When did Jesus talk about with the abomination of desolation? He's talking about the end. But here I thought we were talking about 175. We're talking about both. He was a picture of the Antichrist. And the picture now is becoming so vivid by the interpreters that we're actually seeing the man of sin himself. Notice then, in the latter times of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. A man that speaks great things, whose countenance was more stout than his fellows. He's understanding dark sentences. He shall stand up. This is picturesque of Solomon, who answered all the hard questions. Remember Solomon the Great, the Queen of Sheba, comes and asks him and answers questions about life. 
And he knew all the answers. This man in particular is even more so than Solomon. He has all the dark sentences. He knows all the answers about life. And he also knows all the answers about death. Because this particular individual has been killed and has come back to life. Now, could you imagine having a political leader who has all the questions to your answers, including the ones about death? You don't need religion, because this guy's got all the answers. And by lying signs and wonders, so much so, the Bible says, that he might even deceive the elect. How could you do that? There was a guy a couple years ago, maybe 10, 15, I don't know, 15 years ago. He's still around, but he's all around the world making a, a fortune. Named Jonathan Edwards. He was a medium who could contact the dead. And you could see the people's faces who are in absolute tragedy because they just lost their loved one. And they could pay large sums of money to get this psychic, so-called, to summons them and talk to them and tell them that they're okay. And if you know a person who is in grief, I mean terrible grief, because they've buried their spouse of 50 years, and this man has the answers. That's why Revelation 13 says, who can go against the beast? He has all the answers. It says, dark sentences. Verse 24, His power shall be mighty, but not by His own power. Revelation 13, He's powered by Satan himself. Paul says, Whose coming is after the working of Satan. He shall destroy wonderfully. He shall prosper in practice. Again, He shall destroy the Aramaic word there for, for destroy is by way of corruption. I don't have to destroy you by killing you. I just have to destroy your soul by making you not believe. Distract you with a big gem. You ever notice the big churches? One of the things they normally have on campus is a big gym. He shall corrupt them, again, insomuch that if it were possible, shall deceive the very elect. He shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, knowing that he's the devil, and that was his goal the whole time. By peace. He shall destroy many. He's more subtle than any beast of the field. He shall also stand up. Now here we go. He gets so prideful toward the end. He is so successful and so raging in order to conquer everyone. It says that he will stand up against the prince of princes. He actually will have the haughtiness to stand up to Jesus Christ the King. This beast is having an overwhelming victory. He is conquering to conquer, it says. It says he is to destroy wonderfully, that as powerful as he is, he is no match for the prince. 
for our king. Look at it, it says, He shall stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. The stone that was cut out without hands comes down and crushes in. He is our chief stone. He is our cornerstone. And he will crush the head of the serpent. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days afterward. I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it until now. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.